Hello, my friends, and welcome to another sermon in our series on the book of Genesis. My name is Dan Forrest, and today I will be preaching on Joseph and his amazing Technicolor dream coat found in Genesis 37. As I was thinking through what to title the sermon, what to preach on, I, I thought, what about Plain Favorites Part 2 or Deja Vu, Deja Vu? Because we're going to see some of those same themes that I already preached on again in this story today. Jacob is falling into the exact same trap as his father who played favorites among their kids and brought dysfunction and strife into their families. And Jacob himself experienced firsthand how favoritism messed up his own life and he's doing the same thing with his kids in this story. And spoiler alert, the effects of this favoritism will lead to Joseph being sold into slavery. It's so messed up. Well, I've already done sermons on those topics, so I'm going to take a different angle today. Today, we're going to be talking about blame. If you grew up in a family with lots of siblings, you know there's bound to be fighting. Older siblings picking on younger siblings, younger siblings being brats and jerks to their older siblings, and all this can lead to total chaos. But what happens in those situations when things go too far? Well, the parents have the unfortunate task of figuring out who's to blame here and what are we going to do to punish them. Uh, to give an example of what this looks like in a family, we're going to check out a scene from the movie Home Alone where Kevin McAllister unintentionally causes chaos at the big family dinner the night before their trip to Paris. Enjoy! Did anyone order me a plain cheese? Oh yeah, we did. If you want any... Somebody's gonna have to barf it all up, because it's gone. Fuller, go easy on the Pepsi. Get a plate. Watch it! What is the matter with you? He started it. He hit my pizza on purpose. He knows I ate sausage and olives and Look what you did, you little jerk. Kevin, get upstairs right now. Why? Kevin, you're such a disease. Shut up. Kevin, upstairs. Say goodnight, Kevin. Goodnight, Kevin. Okay, what do you think? Who's to blame for this chaos? Clearly, everyone in the family thinks Kevin is to blame. He's the one who couldn't contain his anger and attacked Buzz, causing the milk to spill and chaos to ensue. But what about Buzz? You know, he ate all Kevin's cheese pizza, and he was baiting Kevin to attack him. Well, what about Kevin's parents? They should have bought more cheese pizza, or at least they should have made sure that there was some left for Kevin. What were they thinking? Plus, they're Buzz's parents. They're the ones who created this monster of an older brother. They must accept some responsibility here. Or what about Uncle Frank? Who talks to their eight-year-old nephew like that in front of everyone? I know he didn't cause the chaos here, but that guy just really ticks me off. Well, 
Family life is complicated, especially when there are lots of kids. And that's exactly what we have in our Genesis story today. As we read through it now, I want you to ask yourself the question, who's to blame? And there will be a test at the end. Before we begin the story of Joseph and his brothers, let me just give a quick breakdown of this complex family. So I know it's confusing because there's so many kids running around, but Buzz, Megan, Linny, and Jeff, those are all Kevin's siblings. I often forget that because none of them look alike. Oddly enough, the one who looks the most like Kevin is his cousin Fuller, but that's because he's Macaulay Culkin's real life brother, Kieran. Wait, sorry, that's, that's the wrong family tree. I shouldn't be talking about the McAllisters. We're supposed to be looking at Jacob's family. Sorry about that. Okay, here we go. This is the right one. Jacob had two wives. The first one he didn't really want, and that was Leah. And then there was the sister who he did want, that was Rachel. Already things are messed up. Okay, he has four kids with Leah. Reuben is the firstborn, and we know how important firstborn males were in this culture. Then there's Simeon, Levi, and Judah. But Jacob really loves Rachel and wants kids with her. But it's not happening. So she gives him her husband, or her handmaid, not her husband, her handmaid, Bilhah, to have kids on her behalf. So he has two boys with her. My boy, Dan, I love that name. And then Naphtali. Well, now Leah is angry because she's not having any more kids. So she offers her handmaid, Zilpah, to Jacob and boom they have two more boys Gad and Asher later Leah manages to get pregnant again and again with Issachar and Zebulun and also a daughter named Dinah and then finally after 11 kids with women Jacob doesn't truly love he finally has a boy with his true love Rachel and names him Joseph after Joseph Rachel gives birth to another boy and that is Benjamin Okay, now let's get to the story. And remember to ask yourself the question throughout this, who's to blame for Joseph being sold into slavery? Genesis 32, verse uh, 37, verse 2. Joseph, a young man of 17, was tending the flocks with his brothers, the sons of Bilhah and the sons of Zilpah, his father's wives. And he brought their father a bad report about them. E, not a good start to this story. Kevin, Mis Kevin McAllister is tattling on his half-brothers. This isn't good. Verse 3. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other sons. Remember, Israel is another name for Jacob. Because he had been born to him in his old age. And he made an ornate robe for him. When his brothers saw that their father loved him more than any of them, he hated. they hated him and could not speak a kind word to him. Wow. And... Here we go. Jacob, a.k.a. Israel, does not hide the fact that he loves Joseph more than all his other sons. He makes an ornate robe for him. That's a huge target on Joseph's back. Joseph would be crazy to wear that robe, but he doesn't know better. He's proud to be daddy's favorite. Seriously, what is Jacob thinking here? By giving him this ornate robe, he's really signaling to all the other sons that he thinks of Joseph as royalty. That, you know, after all, he's the firstborn son of the wife that Jacob truly loved. So he's treating Joseph like he's the true firstborn instead of Reuben. And Reuben and all the other brothers are getting screwed here. But this robe does the exact opposite of what Jacob wants it to do. 
He puts it on Joseph to raise him up, but really, it tears him down. And as a result of this favoritism, the brothers all hate Joseph and could not speak a kind word to him. Ouch. Verse 5. Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him all the more. He said to them, Listen to this dream I had. We were binding sheaves of grain out in the field when suddenly my sheaf rose and stood upright while your sheaves gathered around mine and bowed down to it. His brothers said to him, Do you intend to reign over us? Will you actually rule us? And they hated him all the more because of his dream and what he had said. Joseph, Joseph, what are you doing, man? Your brothers already hate you. Do you really think they're going to love this dream of yours and have a change of heart? They hated him all the more because of this. Verse 9. Then he had another dream, and he told it to his brothers. Listen, he said, I had another dream, and this time the sun and the moon and eleven stars were bowing down to me. When he told his father as well as his brothers, his father rebuked him and said, What is this dream you had? Will your mother and I and your brothers actually come and bow down to the ground before you? His brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. Along with the brothers, now Jacob is angry about these dreams because it concerns him now. Jacob wanted Joseph to rule over his brothers, not over him. Well, verse 11 is really interesting here. The brothers are jealous of him because of his dreams and the father keeps this matter in his mind. Why are the brothers jealous? It's only a dream, right? Well, not really because... In the book of Genesis, dreams are important. Often they are God speaking to his people. We've seen God speak in dreams before in the book of Genesis. He even spoke to Jacob in dreams. And that is why Jacob keeps this matter in his mind. Because he realizes this is from God, which means this is true. This is going to happen. Well, later the brothers are out grazing sheep and Jacob calls Joseph over. Verse 14. So he said to him, Go and see if all is well with your brothers and with the flocks and bring word back to me. Then he sent him off from the valley of Hebron. You know, Joseph had done a great job spying on his brothers before. Let's send him out again. Let's do that job again. But there's an interesting word that Jacob uses here where, where he says, see if all is well. In Hebrew, he's saying, see if Shalom is with your brothers and with the flocks. You know, what is Jacob thinking here? He knows there's no shalom with the brothers. All is not well. Healthy and whole relationships are not happening in this family. And he's sending Joseph to check up on them. You know, this is a way to destroy shalom even more than it already is. What is Jacob thinking? Why is Joseph agreeing to do this? It's not a good situation. His brothers already hate him. Here we go. Verse 17. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them near Dothan. But they saw him in the distance, and before he reached them, they plotted to kill him. Here comes the dreamer, they said to each other. Come now, let's kill him and throw him into one of the cisterns and say that a ferocious animal devoured him. Then we'll see what comes of his dreams. Yeah, Jacob, I think it's safe to say all is not well with the brothers. This is the exact opposite of Shalom. Verse 21, when Reuben heard this, he tried to rescue him from their hands. Let's not take his life, he said. Do not shed any blood. Throw him into the cistern here in the wilderness, but don't lay a hand on him. Reuben said this to rescue him from them and take him back to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, 
They stripped him of his robe, the ornate robe he was wearing. They took him, threw him into the cistern. The cistern was empty. There was no water in it. Now, this is interesting. Reuben, the true firstborn, is sort of doing the right thing. And he's standing up for his younger brother. Even though Joseph is being set up to take Reuben's position, but Reuben still seems like kind of a jerk. Why is he hiding the plan to rescue Joseph later? Why isn't he fully stepping in and supporting Joseph and fully advocating for him to save his life? Well, there's this interesting thing about Reuben that was mentioned in the previous chapters, and I, I can't remember if Pastor Jonathan mentioned it, but in Genesis 35, 22, we learn that Reuben at one point went in and slept with Bilhah, Rachel's handmaid, mother to two of Jacob's sons. Yeah, that's incest. This is messed up. And most likely as a result of his action, he stinked himself and lost some of the power in the family. So Reuben can't fully advocate for Joseph because Reuben is not fully respected as the firstborn anymore. Verse 25. As they sat down to eat their meal, they looked up and saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead. Their camels were loaded with spices, balm, and myrrh, and they were on their way to take them down to Egypt. Judah said to his brothers, What will we gain if we kill our brother and cover up his blood? Come, let's sell him to the Ishmaelites and not lay our hands on him. After all, he is our brother, our own flesh and blood. His brothers agreed. So when the Midianite merchants came by, his brothers pulled Joseph up out of the cistern and sold him for 20 shekels of silver to the Ishmaelites who took him to Egypt. Judah seems to have more authority than Reuben at this point, And Judah is the fourth born son. The brothers agree with Judah's plan and Joseph is sold into slavery. Well, when Reuben returned to the cistern and saw that Joseph was not there, he tore his clothes. He went back to his brothers and said, the boy isn't there. Where can I turn now? <laughs> you know, Reuben wasn't even there when this happened. The brothers didn't think that he was important enough to include in this big decision. They went behind his back and sold Joseph. Verse 31, then they got Joseph's robe, slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. They took the ornate robe back to their father and said, we found this. Examine it to see whether it is your son's robe. He recognized it and said, It is my son's robe. Some ferocious animal has devoured him. Joseph has surely been torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his clothes, put on sackcloth, and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, I will continue to mourn until I join my son in the grave. So his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. The robe Jacob gave his son Joseph as a sign of his love and affection and desire for leadership for him is now the evidence that Joseph is dead, torn to pieces. Genesis 37 ends in total chaos. The brothers have committed a terrible act against their own brother, the father has lost his beloved son, and Joseph is a slave in Egypt. And next week, we're going to learn how great that experience was for him. So now, it's time to play everyone's favorite game show, Who's to Blame? Who do you think is to blame for Joseph being sold into slavery? 
Is it contestant number one, Joseph? Joseph was a little brat giving bad reports about his brothers, spying on them, tattling on them. And he was so full of pride, always boasting about himself. He knew what he was doing wearing that ornate robe. He was asking for trouble. And couldn't he have kept those dreams to himself? He just made things worse, bragging about them to everyone. Joseph should have just kept his mouth shut, not worn that ridiculous robe, and he would have been fine. What do you think? Is Joseph to blame? Or what about contestant number two? Jacob, a.k.a. Israel. Jacob experienced firsthand the problem with showing favoritism to your kids, and he did the same thing. He learned nothing from his bad fathers. In fact, he was probably worse, publicly declaring Joseph to be his favorite son, making an ornate robe for him. Joseph set up his favorite son for failure. He instigated his other sons to hate Joseph, especially by sending him to get that report on how they were doing. He basically sent him to slavery. Well, what about contestants number three, the brothers? These guys openly hated Joseph, choosing to speak bad about him. They ignored the dreams from God. They allowed those dreams to make them even more angry. They also were the ones who attempted to murder Joseph. Then they decided just to abandon him in a pit to die. Then they decided to be merciful and just sell him into slavery. But can you really blame them? Joseph was a little brat, always egging them on. And, and Jacob shouldn't have favored Joseph over them. So I, I don't know. What do you think? Well, also we have contestants number four, the Midianites or the Ishmaelites. These guys were in the business of buying and selling slaves. They were clearly unethical people. Surely there is some blame that we can place on them for all this. Finally, contestant number five, God. <laughs> Maybe surprising to see his name on the list of people to blame, but he did give Joseph those dreams. What was he expecting Joseph to do with them? He must have known that Joseph was going to tell his brothers and thus make them even more angry at him. And as we get further along in this story over the next few weeks, it really seems like God is setting Joseph on this path to Egypt, where he'll start as a slave, work his way up to a high-ranking official, responsible then for saving many people's lives during an upcoming famine. So I'm sure there's a case that we can make that God is to blame somehow for Joseph being sold into slavery. Okay, those are the five contestants. Who do you think is the one most responsible to blame for Joseph's troubles? Lock your answers in now because I am about to reveal the answer. Drum roll, please. The one to blame is... Who knows? I don't know. Clearly, everyone had some part to play in this. You, you, can't, you can't pin blame on just one of these people or one of these groups of people. Everyone contributed in some way to Joseph ending up in Egypt. And you know, the same thing is true with the Home Alone clip that I showed at the beginning. It wasn't all Kevin's fault. It wasn't all Buzz's fault. It wasn't all the parents' fault. Families are messy and complicated, and you can't assign blame so easily. So why did I make us go through this whole exercise? The reason I did this is because there's a trap that we often fall into when we view difficult situations where we assign too much blame to one person or group over another. In the Home Alone situation, Kevin takes the brunt of the blame for what happened there. But Kevin is only eight years old. He's a kid. 
And he's being bullied actively by his siblings, especially Buzz. He's goaded into reacting by his older brother, Buzz, who knew exactly what he was doing. It's unfair to call Kevin a jerk in front of everyone and have everyone blame Kevin so harshly for what happened in this situation. And I think the same thing happens to Joseph a lot of times. In Sunday school, when I was a kid, I remember being taught that the main takeaway of this story is don't be prideful like Joseph. Don't boast about how great you are. Don't tattle on others. Don't be a bratty younger brother like Kevin. I mean, Joseph. Basically, I was taught the reason Joseph was in slavery was because Joseph put himself there. He deserved it. It was his fault. This is a classic case of victim blaming. According to the Canadian Resource Centre, Victims of Crime, victim blaming is a devaluing act that occurs when the victim of a crime or an accident is held responsible in whole or in part for the crimes that have been committed against them. Victim blaming often occurs in cases of rape or sexual assault. People will say things like, well, look at what she was wearing. She was asking for it. Or they'll ask questions like, well, why didn't she do more to stop it or leave the situation? These comments and questions devalue what happened to the victim and they diminish the responsibility of the offender. And while victim blaming is common in cases of sexual assault, they also occur for other crimes as well. When, when I was a kid, I left my brother's bike outside our church building because I didn't have a lock and I felt it was disrespectful to bring the bike into the church. So I left it outside, but I kept checking on it throughout the service to make sure that it wouldn't get stolen. But the last time that I went out to look for it, it was gone. It was stolen. And when this happened, I was the one who got in trouble for being careless when I was the victim. The thief who committed the crime got no punishment. I got punished instead. There have been a number of times uh, later in life, maybe you've had the similar situation where you've been scammed out of money. Well, for me, I rarely ever tell anyone when this happens because I'm sure that I'm going to be told by someone that I was so stupid for falling for it. And what did I think was going to happen when I got into this? But I'm the victim here. I, I, was, I was the one who was ripped off. These scams work not because the victims are stupid, but because the scammers have been doing this for a long time. They're good at what they do. Well, experiences like this and others that I've seen in media and in our culture and even in our church culture have ingrained in me an attitude of victim blaming. In 2014, there was a massive leak of stolen nude photos from celebrity iCloud accounts. And at the time, I was a youth pastor, and, and I was talking with some of my youth about this. And my position was, these girls shouldn't have been taking nude selfies in the first place. This wouldn't be a problem if they hadn't done that. Well, I'm embarrassed to say that I had to be called out by one of my youth who pointed out I was victim blaming. These girls were the victims here. The guys who hacked their iClouds and posted their photos, they were the offenders. And I was making no comment or judgment about them whatsoever. 
this isn't the first time that I was called out for victim blaming. It's actually taken me a while to finally get the message that what I was doing was harmful. Now think about my youth group, for example. Who would feel safe coming to me if they had been victimized? They had heard me subtly and publicly victim blaming others. So why would they come to me if they knew I would probably just victim blame them for what happened to them? Honestly, I'm shocked that it took me so long to realize how ingrained this was in my mind. And I still have to stop myself sometimes when I start to judge the wrong person in similar situations. In the case of Joseph, I agree with biblical scholar Dr. Craig Keener when he says, Whatever Joseph's imperfections, he did not merit what his brothers did to him. In family counseling, it is always helpful to see what each of us can do to make things better. But it is also wrong to blame the victim for something that was not the victim's fault. Nothing justifies selling another human being into slavery. When you say it like that, it seems so obvious. Yeah, nothing justifies selling someone into slavery. But too often, we dismiss the offenders like we dismiss the brothers in the Joseph story too easily. We dismiss the bike thieves, we dismiss the scammers, we dismiss the sexual assaulters. And Jonathan was talking about Ravi Zacharias in a previous sermon, and we just don't want to believe that he could do what he did. So we blame the victims because we don't know them and they're not credible in our minds. But anytime anyone comes forward with stories of abuse or theft, or getting scammed, we have to give priority to the victim first. We must take their story seriously. As a church, as a church community, it is absolutely necessary that we create an environment where victims feel safe to come forward with their stories so that we can pursue justice and healing together. There are two very clear examples of victim blaming in the Bible, and, and both are condemned by God. The first is the case of Job. Job did nothing to deserve the suffering that he went through, but his friends repeatedly blame him for what he's going through. One friend says in Job 4, 7-8, Stop and think, do the innocent die? When have the upright been destroyed? My experience shows that those who plant trouble and cultivate evil will harvest the same. Well, definitely, when, when someone plants trouble, they're going to harvest the same. But doesn't he know that trouble also happens to good people too, who did nothing to deserve it? The second friend says this in Job eleven fourteen to 17 Get rid of your sins and leave all iniquity behind you. Then your face will brighten with innocence. You will be strong and free of fear. You will forget your misery. It will be like water flowing away. Your life will be brighter than noonday. Even darkness will be as bright as morning. Just admit this is all your fault and everything will be clear. Everything will go back to normal. That's the gist of this great advice. Well, no, this is not how this works when Job is the victim. Job did nothing wrong, and God harshly condemns Job's friends for treating Job in this way. This attitude that Job must have sinned to cause this trouble is so harmful. I know for myself as a Christian, I wrestle with this all the time. 
Anytime someone does something bad to me or something bad happens to me, my first response tends to be, what did I do wrong here? What is God punishing me for? This is such a negative attitude. It doesn't lead to freedom and healing. It leads to me beating myself up and it leads to me holding on to my pain as if I deserve it for some reason. Well, the second example of victim blaming comes from the disciples of Jesus in John 9 verses 1 to 2. As Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? The disciples actually think that it was because someone sinned that this man was born blind. And Jesus rightfully calls the disciples out here. Neither the man nor his parents sinned to cause this blindness. This is a theological trap. Good things happen to bad people sometimes. And bad things happen to good people because we live in an unjust and unfair world. But thankfully, as we know from the Bible, we hear repeatedly over and over again that our God in this unjust world hears the cries of the oppressed. He helps the helpless and he brings justice to the abused. Jesus himself frequently called out injustice and inequality in his world. He lifted up women who were shunned, abused, and marginalized. He healed, he touched, he dignified the disabled and those who were deemed unclean. Jesus didn't tell the poor people that they needed to get a job and work harder. Jesus didn't shame the woman who was caught in adultery, blaming her for what happened. Instead, Jesus showed compassion and grace to those that he encountered. And you know what? His harshest words when he did speak negatively about people is actually reserved for those who specialized in victim blaming. And those were the Pharisees and the experts of the law. He called them hypocrites and vipers because they placed so many burdens, so much judgment, so much blame, so much condemnation on everyday people. But then they refused to even lift a finger to help them. My friends, we have been taught to blame the victims in our society. I think we need to be honest about that and, and confess that and get that out in the open. We've been taught to beat ourselves up when bad things happen to us. But Jesus calls us to leave our former way of doing things and to follow him. To follow him in showing compassion and grace to those that we previously wouldn't have. To open our ears to hear the stories of those who've been victimized and to open our arms to embrace them. Will you join me in praying this prayer from Psalm 10? This prayer is an invitation for God to hear the cries of the oppressed. It's also an invitation for us to release our desire to seek vengeance and to trust that God will deal with the wicked of this world as a good and just king. Let's pray. Get up, Lord. Get your fist ready, God. Don't forget the ones who suffer. Why do the wicked reject God? Why do they think to themselves that you won't find out? But you do see. You do see troublemaking and grief, and you do something about it. The helpless leave it all to you. You are the orphan's helper. Break the arms of those who are wicked and evil. Seek out their wickedness until there's no more to find. 
The Lord rules forever and always. The nations will vanish from his land. Lord, you listen to the desires of those who suffer. You steady their hearts. You listen closely to them to establish justice for the, or- for the orphan and the oppressed so that the people of the land will never again be terrified. Amen. Go in peace, everyone. Thank you.